few years back, um, Marina and a, a few of our friends visited Paris. And when you're in Paris and you're a tourist, you, you have to visit the, the Louvre Museum and you have to go and see that famous painting of the Mona Lisa. And I'll never forget going to see that painting because I had the strangest experience. And if you've been there, you probably had the very same experience. Where it's kept, it's quite a small room, but it's just packed with people. And it's a small painting against a big wall. And so one of the problems is this, if you want to see the painting, you kind of need to shove your way through the people. Well, as I was shoving my way through the people, I couldn't help but notice that many of the people who I expected to be looking at the Mona Lisa were looking at me. In other words, they were standing with their backs to the painting and their faces forward. Now, it wasn't that they were looking at me. It was that they had their phones out and they were taking selfies. Now, now, now that's strange, isn't it, right? It's strange because the big thing is not themselves, it's the painting. And yet, you know what a selfie is? is when you take a photo of yourself and the self is the most important thing. In fact, it was so strange, right? You had this incredible painting. Well, it's it's a matter of, you know, beauties and eye of the beholder. But it's this painting that everybody wants to see. And, and, and there are so many people and they're like fixing their hair and they're taking so many shots. And I just wanted to scream out, you're missing the point. There's the painting. Look at it. It ain't about you. Well, as we come to this passage before us this evening, we've got disciples, John's disciples, and their problem is self. They want self at the center and not the savior. In fact, their problem is, is they, they want to get in the way of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. Now, the observant among you will have noticed, I hope, we've skipped over verses 16 to 21. Last week, we only touched on verse 16, but we didn't get the opportunity to touch on the verses connected with it. Don't worry. The plan is to look at that section more in depth on another occasion. Now, we're going to look at verses 22 through 36 under three headings. We'll look at verses 22 to 27 under the heading, The Jealousy of John the Baptist's Disciples. We'll look at verses 28 to 30 under the heading, The Humility of John the Baptist. And then finally, we'll look at verses 31 through 36 under the heading, The Glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jealousy of John the Baptist's Disciples, The Humility of John the Baptist Himself, And the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the jealousy of John's disciples. Notice the opening verse. It says, after this, after what? After Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in the middle of the night, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside. So in other words, they left the capital city of Jerusalem and they now head out into the country. And notice what John tells us that they were doing, John the author tells us what they were doing in the countryside. They were baptizing. 
But in the very same region, in the very, in the, in the near vicinity, verse 24 tells us that John the Baptist and his disciples were doing the very same thing. They were there baptizing. So, so, so get this, right? The way this passage is set up, we have two Christian ministries who have set up shop in the same neighborhood doing the same thing. Do you see how this is seen as setting itself up? There's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. Now look at verse 25. Now a discussion, dispute, argument arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now this is a really strange verse because we, we, we don't get told that much. We're told John's disciples enter into a dispute with an unnamed Jewish man. And the, their discussion centers on the issue of purification, ceremony washing, put more literally, literally, baptism. You know, when I was studying this passage this week, I had to smile. Right down through the centuries, God's people have been debating the issue of baptism. Here it is in the pages of the gospel. There's literally nothing new under the sun. As I said, the, the exact nature of the discussion we're not told, but but what, what, we, what we get the sense of from the next verse is their discussion seemed to raise concerns among John the Baptist's disciples about Jesus' ever-increasing popularity. I don't know what this unnamed Jew said to them, but maybe he said to them, Hey guys, you know, you and John the Baptist, you've been baptizing out here, you're baptizing loads of people, you're baptizing where the water's plentiful, but look over there. There's Jesus and his disciples and all the people are leaving you to go to him. So here's my question. Is Jesus' baptism better than yours? Ouch. Well, well, it seems that John's disciples, they, 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 they storm off. Again, we don't know the exact nature of the discussion, but what we know is the outcome. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. Now it's well been said that the way we talk about other people says a lot about how we think about them. The way you talk about other people says a lot, reveals a lot. You know the way that these disciples spoke about John the Baptist and Jesus reveals a lot. Notice what they said to John the Baptist. Rabbi. That is, they esteemed him. They admired him. But notice how they spoke about Jesus. He who was with you. To him you bore witness. They won't even mention his name. In other words, you need to understand this. John's disciples thought much of John the Baptist, but they thought very little of Jesus. They see all these people going to Jesus and his disciples for baptism, and they are frustrated, they're annoyed, they're alarmed. When you're in pastoral ministry, you often discover that If someone comes to you with a problem, sometimes the presenting issue is not the real issue. So somebody might come and say, I've got a question about baptism. 
It's not the real issue. There's a deeper issue. And sometimes it's the job of a pastor or a Christian member with a friend to try and get to the real issue. I'll tell you what the real issue with John's disciples was. It's jealousy. You see, bubbling under the surface as they watched the ever-increasing popularity of Jesus, they got really annoyed and they really began to resent it. Now let's just press pause for a moment. What is jealousy? The Bible uses various words for it. Jealousy, it's like a same group of sins. Envy, covetousness, it's in the Ten Commandments. To be jealous of someone is to want what they have for yourself. Or to want someone that is not yours. Now here's the thing about the sinful heart. We can be jealous, envious, covetous about literally anything and everything. We can be jealous of someone's personality, jealous of someone's position, jealous of someone's popularity, jealous of someone's possessions. We can be jealous of someone's appearance, abilities, achievements. We can be jealous of someone's finances, of their picture-perfect family or their huge friendship circle. Jealousy, right, it's one of those sins that you often don't realize that you are struggling with on a weekly basis. So, you know, when you're at school and someone gets praise from the teacher that you deep down want, you get jealous. Or when you're at work and someone gets the promotion that you think you ought to have been given. Jealous. Or you're a mum or a dad and you look at another family and it looks like they've got the picture-perfect life. They've got the holidays, the home, kids who behave. You usually feel jealous. Jealousy exists in churches. You may have been jealous today of another Christian for whatever reason. Jealousy exists in the hearts of church members and it exists in the hearts of ministers. So you say you get jealous of other ministries and other churches. You know, one of the, the symptoms of, of jealousy is that you end up resenting, feeling resentment towards other people. You can't rejoice in their success. You can't rejoice in what they have. Jealousy, resentment, rivalry, competition, all the same family. Well, let's press play again. On this story, John's disciples were jealous because Jesus was turning people to himself. They come to John, they make it clear, they say the statement. Now look at John's response. This is, this is brilliant. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now do you understand what John is saying here? John hears the problem among his disciples and he says, like, wait, hold up, guys. The best antidote to jealousy is the sovereignty of God. More specifically, the doctrine of the providence of God. This is how one commentator puts it. 
The best antidote to evangelicity is the conviction of the sovereignty of God. We need to understand that we live under the sovereignty of a wise God. And it ought to be extremely comforting to know that what one has been given, or not given for that matter, is traceable ultimately to the providence of God. You are what you are. You have what you have only because of the grace of God. John's disciples were complaining. Look at all these people leaving us to go to Jesus and his disciples. John the Baptist's instinctive response is to think, well, God is infinitely sovereign and wise and all that we have is what God has given us. And all that they have is what God has given them. Meditate on that for a moment. You know when you get jealous at work, at school, in your life? It's because you're not looking at life rightly. You think you should have what someone else has, but what you don't understand is that you have what you have, and ultimately it's traceable to the providence of God. John the Baptist's knowledge of God helped him as he responded to this problem. But we've noticed the jealousy of John's disciples. Now we're going to look at the humility of John. And, 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 and honestly, let's be struck by it. Look at verse 28. He says to him, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, John the Baptist said these words in chapter 1. Do you remember it? It was when the religious leaders came up from Jerusalem to interrogate him. And they said to John, who are you? And he said, I am not the Christ. I don't know about you, but I've never had to tell someone, I am not the Christ. But John the Baptist did. And that says something about the significance of his ministry. Hundreds of thousands of people were going out to hear him preach. Hundreds of thousands of people wanted to be baptized by him. Hundreds of thousands of people started to conclude, this man is a prophet, son of the Lord. He might even be the Messiah. And John says, listen, I am not the Christ. He's saying to his disciples, I'm not the Messiah. It's not about me. It's about him. Notice he, he, he goes on and says, but I have been sent before him. John the Baptist not only knows who he is not, he knows who he is. He is the forerunner. He's the one who's to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the one who's to point people to Jesus. John Calvin's Institutes falls into two books, The Knowledge of God and The Knowledge of Self. John the Baptist knew who God was, how God was sovereign, how God's sovereign providence worked out in his life, but he also knew who he was. His self-knowledge saved him from the crippling competition, rivalry, and jealousy that his disciples were struggling with. It's quite a thought. As people are leaving John the Baptist and his disciples to go and get baptized by Jesus' disciples, 
John the Baptist's ministry was decreasing and Jesus' ministry was increasing. And it made John so happy. Can I ask you a question? What makes you really happy? What was the happiest moment in your life? Happiest moment in my life? April 24 years ago, when Marina said, I do. I mentioned that so that Marina can hear it. (laughs) I mentioned that because John here uses the a wedding is an illustration to describe his role to his disciples. One of the things that it, when we're, we've been studying John's gospel, and hopefully you've been picking up this, is that underneath every text is Old Testament prophetic imagery. Every single section is rooted and grounded in Old Testament prophecy. And do you know the Old Testament prophets used to say that God is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52 and 62, Hosea, you name it. It's everywhere all over the Old Testament scriptures. And John has actually used a wedding back in chapter 2, the wedding of Canaan, and, and, and depicted Christ's relationship to the church. Well, now as he thinks about his own relationship to Jesus, he uses a wedding. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Observe how John likens his joy to that of a best man at a wedding. Some of you men here may have served as a best man at a wedding. You know what your job was? Your job, of course, was to help relieve the best man of all of his worries and anxieties. Your job was to ensure the safekeeping of the wedding rings. Your job was to provide moral support to the groom and ensure that he doesn't take cold feet and run away. As John thought of his role in relation to Jesus, he thought of his role not as the bride, not as the bridegroom, but as the best man in everything he was secondary. One of the, the great privileges of ministry is getting to officiate at people's weddings. So I've seen a lot of weddings and a lot of happy days for people. But there is a, an increasing trend at weddings, right, that, that isn't so pleasant. It's best men. The focus of the whole day should be on the bride and the groom, but today there's this ever-increasing reality where best men want to take center stage. Before the bride arrives in the church, he's, he's poncing about the place, flinging things, you know, drawing and trying to get people all in the mood. And then at the wedding ceremony, when there's this, after the wedding ceremony and there's the, the reception, there's the speeches, best men often view it as their job to humiliate with humor the groom. And sometimes it's horrible. The best man's meant to be the best friend. He's there to honor the groom. He's there to say, listen, here's some stories. Yes, funny, but but here's the reason why this man is the right man for this woman. I've been at a few ends where I've cringed. As the best man thought, my role's not secondary, my role's primary. 
Not so with John the Baptist. He knew that his job was to point people to Jesus. His job was to fade into the background. His job was to make sure that as the groom came for his bride, everything would be ready. You know, weddings in the 21st century, the big event is when the, at the wedding is when the doors open and the bride walks down the aisle. In the first century, that wasn't the case. It was the opposite. It's when the bridegroom came. You see, he'd organized everything with the help of his best man. And so look at what it says actually in verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's standing, he's waiting. And who's he waiting for? He's waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when he hears him, he rejoices greatly. And that was John the Baptist. When Jesus came, he rejoiced. When people left him to go to Jesus, he rejoiced. When Andrew and John followed Jesus, he rejoiced. When he pointed people to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he rejoiced. And church, our role is very similar to John the Baptist's role. Our greatest joy ought to come from pointing people to the bridegroom. Now, it's in this context we get John's very famous exclamation. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, they say of John chapter 3, it is the must-read chapter of the entire Bible. Do you know why? Because the word must appears four times. John chapter one, uh, John chapter three, verse seven, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. John chapter three, verse 14, the son of man must be lifted high. How do you become a Christian? Being born again. How do you become a Christian? Through believing the message regarding the son of man, what he did on the cross. How do you live the Christian life? He must increase. We must decrease. And John here was so happy to decrease and so happy to see Jesus increase. Why? Because John's shining quality was his humility. You know, the shining quality of, 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 of us as Christians should be humility, but that's easier said than done. So, don't worry. Here's how this, here's how we're going to wrap this sermon up. We're going to look at the glory of Jesus. Because if we're going to live out a lifestyle of humility, we need to know the reasons why Jesus must increase and we must decrease. And that brings us to verses 31 through 36. Where we're told that Jesus is above all and Jesus came to give all. Now, read verses 31 to 33 with me. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what is seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. Now what John the author is saying here is he's acknowledging what has been said about Jesus all the way through. He is 
the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John the Baptist is saying, John the author is saying here in these verses, giving us the logic of why John the Baptist understood that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. He understood that Jesus is above all. He is heavenly. He is God. In other words, because of where Jesus is from, because of who Jesus is, he ought to get all the glory. John the Baptist is from earth. John's the Baptist disciples from earth. When they speak, it's in an earthly way. When Jesus speaks, it's in a heavenly way. He has been in the bosom of the Father for all eternity. He has come to reveal the Father. He has seen and he has heard. And he utters the words of God, as it says in verse 34. You know why it was a great thing that John the Baptist, John the Baptist's followers were leaving Jesus, to, leaving John the Baptist to go to Jesus? It's because quite literally he preached a superior message in the sense that you had the word of God in flesh. He offered a greater baptism. This isn't just my testimony. This is John the Baptist's testimony. I come and baptize with water. He comes and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist gave testimony that Jesus was better qualified to communicate the wondrous truths of who God is, of heaven and hell, because he's above all. Now, that's what John the Baptist's disciples failed to see. The glory of Jesus. And you know, brothers and sisters, you know the reason why we can struggle with jealousy? And you know the reason why actually in our everyday lives we can struggle to talk about Jesus is because our minds are not captivated with the glory of Jesus. We're like the people standing in front of the Mona Lisa. We've made it all about self. We want to take center stage. We're getting in the way. We think it's about us when it's all about him. And our problem is we don't see him for who he is. The glorious one who is above all. But secondly, I need you to see this. He's also the glorious one who gives all things. See, if you look down at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This is fascinating, right? John chapter 3 verse 16 says this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John chapter 3 verse 36, 35 says the father loves the son and he gave him all things. The apostle Paul took those two verses as it were and put them together. In Romans chapter 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see it? Christ was given up for us. Christ gives us all things. Why is Jesus the one who should capture our glory? It's because he's given us his all. His life 
for our eternal life. He died so that we might live forever. He's given us all things, all of his blessings, all of his inheritance, all he gives to us. And as this verse wraps up, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. You want the life? John says it's simple. Believe in the Son. You refuse to believe in the Son, you disobey God. And not only do you forfeit life, but listen, the wrath of God remains in you. That is one of the most sobering truths we could ever hear, but don't take it as my words. This is the word of God. This is John the author speaking, but he's giving the testimony of Jesus. Those who refuse the Son will have to endure the wrath of God. But listen, God doesn't want people to perish. God wants all people to believe and know life. And so this invitation comes to all of us this evening. Believe in the Son. Come and know know eternal life. Come and have all things in Christ. That's the main point if you're not yet a believer. But listen, here's the main point if you are a believer. If you're not captivated and captured by the glory of Jesus, you're going to spend your Christian life trying to increase and letting Jesus decrease. That's how it works. If you're not captivated by who he is and what he's done, you are going to spend your life as a glory robber. You're going to try and rob glory from Jesus. You're going to get in the way, be a hindrance to others. Instead of helping others to see him, you're going to make it all about you. Our job is to honor the bridegroom. Our job is to point others to the bridegroom, not humiliate him. But sadly, as Christians, you know, in, in our own wee way, we can, we can be a pretty poor example of what it is to be a best man. Instead of taking every opportunity we can to speak so well of him, we we don't speak of him at all. Instead of having him center of our lives, we let all of our concerns dictate our lives. John the Baptist says, if you want to know boundless joy, if you want your joy to be complete, you must decrease. He must. Increase. So the beautiful thing for us as Christians is if we want to give him the glory and not steal the glory, then behold his glory. Stare at him. Fix your eyes upon him. Fade into the background. And let all the glory fall on him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we, we do want to be, as it were, better, 
best men and best women pointing others to you. Honoring you so that others might see you, hear you, love you, trust you. And yet we are so aware that we can often fail because we're so focused on self. As it were, we turn our backs on you and we stare at ourselves. Forgive us, we pray. And help us even in this week to be captivated and captured by your glory. Humble us, we pray, that we might exalt in you. We pray this in your precious and powerful name. Amen.